I thought you said you had a good segue. Hey, that was a good segue. (laughs) (laughs) You do better, huh? No. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and it is the week after Thanksgiving. More specifically, it is the week after uh, my friends and I did a massive Thanksgiving pie swap in lieu of our traditional Friendsgiving. So I am uh, currently about 90% pie, which is fantastic. It's it's how we all should be living our lives all the time. <laughs> Joining me, as always, is my fellow co-host. Uh, Martha Sullivan, librarian and currently overwhelmed by uh, shopping deals. Mm. I'm so bad at Black Friday shopping. Like, I should be good at it because I hate spending money, but I get so overwhelmed. My Gmail, I I take a lot of pride in keeping a zero inbox. Mm -hmm. And my Gmail, the promotions folder, had 300 emails in it today. Good Lord Almighty. I was like, I'm deleting all of these. Like, I'm... I'm sure there are ways in there for me to uh, save money, but there are too many of them and I cannot deal with it. So peace. (laughs) Um, I I keep a zero inbox on my primary and do not care what's going on in my other tabs uh, numbers wise. Um, That being said, I just looked at my promotions tab and woof, it is entirely full on the first page of emails from today. (sighs) Too many emails. Emails stress me out. I can't. I, I don't like having yeah emails. <laughs> uh, I, I have so many useless political emails cluttering my promotions that I like my promotions folder is just the wild west of things I don't care about. Uh, and every now and then something will make its way through. That's my social tab. Mm. I was like, I don't care what I don't care what Twitter is telling me. <laughs> uh, it does the, not matter. <laughs> the only thing that goes to my social tab is Goodreads. And I think I I just follow one person i think on goodreads because i do goodreads for myself so uh it's just a lot of updates from austin uh former guest of the show you don't get updates from me i don't think i follow you (gasps) rude i mean we could change that but i'll be honest i do not (laughs) use goodreads as a social media platform i use goodreads as a tracking for me platform yeah me too and also i've been avoiding goodreads because every time i go on there it tells me how far behind i am Um... in my uh yearly reading goal and (laughs) that feels rude to me i mean this is the year that we all get a pass on any goals we made in january january was a very different time you know it was yes (laughs) i saved you a bleep there yes you did (laughs) all right well we are going to be talking today about non-western genre fiction uh genre fiction is science fiction and fantasy and we have one example of each uh, non-Western well, is... Mm, genre is also, like... Okay, horror. Yeah. yeah okay. It's non-literary fiction. Sure, fair fair enough. Um, We, fine. Non-literary fiction, genre fiction, we have one sci-fi and one fantasy. Um, And we will be getting to those two homeworks shortly, but first, we will share with you what is stuck in our heads. Whatever piece of pop culture, media, what have you, that is currently stuck in our heads. Um... As I say, we're recording right after the nice Thanksgiving break, so we probably have a fair amount of pop culture banging around in there. Uh, Martha, why don't you take it away? 
So you may remember that last episode I whiffed this fully. Um, I mean, you because... talked about Brockmire. You you <laughs> saved you, you saved what was initially a total whiff. <laughs> anyway, I actually have things to talk about today. I actually had to think about what I wanted specifically to bring to the table today. And the answer is that about a week ago, I found out that a YA novel that I read a few years ago that I really, really loved called When Dimple Met Rishi by Sandhya Menon was being adapted into a Netflix miniseries. The show is called Mismatched. And the premise of the book is that two Indian teenagers or Indian American teenagers go to the same summer, like, tech app development camp for smart people mm -hmm. nerd nerd summer camp Got nerd, it. nerd summer camp yeah and dimple the girl is going because she is legitimately interested in app development and is really excited that her parents are letting her be this independent and is looking forward to all the opportunities um that the camp will provide for her and rishi the boy is going for that stuff and also because unbeknownst to dimple their parents have been discussing arranging a marriage between the two of them, which he is all in favor of. And when Dimple finds out, is really understandably upset about. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so it becomes this story about like tradition versus independence. And oh, no, they actually do kind of like each other. But Dimple is like so upset about her parents going behind her back to arrange this. Um, it's very cute. It's very sweet. Um, and the show is both of those things and also makes a couple of really interesting changes. The book is set in California. The show is set in Jaipur in India. Oh, interesting. And is all in Hindi and is basically like leans much, much more heavily on an Indian like cultural atmosphere. Is it an Indian studio production that then you said it it, is... uh, Netflix or is it like a, a Netflix oh. production that they just. Uh... Let me find out. Yeah. I know it was written and produced by Indian filmmakers. Um... It must have been, and then purchased by Netflix. Okay, sure. Which which makes a lot more sense than Netflix just deciding to radically alter the like the book. But yeah, I, I'm really enjoying the changes that they make. Like because it's a mini series, um, the the side characters that were created for the care for the show um, get to like be developed into really interesting characters. And like I said, it's just interesting to think about the show in its in this setting contrasted to how it played out in California. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's what I'm I'm three episodes in. I think it's six episodes total. Um, and I'm trying to pace myself both because it is subtitled, so I have to actually like focus on it. And you, you can't be playing uh it's Fire Emblem right I, now. I, man, I was thinking of the subtitle of Fire Emblem <laughs> Three Houses, right? Mm -hmm. I was like, the game with three in the title that Mar Martha is super yes. into again. <laughs> that Martha is back into. Yep, yeah. Yep. Um, I have to actually pay attention. And also, I want it to last. It's really nice. Mm -hmm. Nice. Plus, I get all of that, all of that um, 
what is the phrase that I'm vicariously, I get to travel vicariously to all of these beautiful places. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally get that part. Um, well, I, over the past, uh, you know, over the four day weekend, I watched a lot of movies, but not one of those is what is on my, uh, list. Um, instead I picked up a book that I got a year or two ago and just never read, which is Walter Isaacson's biography of Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, Walter Isaacson is a premier biographer. He's done biographies of like, he did the biography of Steve Jobs, um, bunch of other big ones that I don't have off the top of my head. Uh, but his Da Vinci one is really fascinating. Uh, da Vinci is obviously someone that we all know, but not really. Um, and that's sort of my take on him too, going into this. And it's just incredibly well written, well researched, um, fascinating stuff. Lots of good art history, lots of good Renaissance uh, history, uh, Renaissance Italian history specifically, also like interwoven in with his, his sort of personal life. Um, using his diaries and journals as like the primary source for the entire work. Uh, so, yeah, if you're interested in some, I, I know, Martha, you occasionally have a desire to read some nonfiction. Um, yeah, it was a goal of mine this year. And, <laughs> well, I mean, well. I, yeah, right. Uh, this book is a, a it's a bit of a doorstop. It's at least I think I think it's maybe 500 pages pre end notes. Um, but it's an incredibly fast read and what's very nice, especially for Da Vinci, there's pictures everywhere. Um, it's not one of those books that has like, you know, the glossy eight pages in the middle that are all the pictures. It's like, there's pictures on every fifth, sixth page. Um, which makes total sense for a, a book about Leonardo Da Vinci, uh, Interesting. and, and really helps sort of like keep the flow going and, and, you know, it, it becomes a page turner in a really interesting way. Mm -hmm. uh, very sh short sections so you you know you can read two or three pages that's you know one topic uh and so it really feels like you're you're covering good ground and and it's easy to pick up for 15 minutes and put back down i appreciate that although i will say that i tend to consume nonfiction as audiobooks mm. and that sounds like it would benefit it would benefit me to actually read it. Yeah, I, I would say definitely read this rather than listen to it. Um, and even with all the pictures all over the place, I was finding myself wikiing things um, either for just a higher resolution picture or because whatever he was talking about didn't have a picture included in the book. Because, um, you know, visual medium is, is very crucial when talking about art and visual, you know, drawings and sketches and sculpture and all the rest. Absolutely. All right, cool. Well, that was what is stuck in our head. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about The City of Brass, The Three Body Problem, and non-Western genre fiction. So stick around. All right, and we are back. So we are talking about non-Western genre fiction. We've got a fantasy and a sci-fi for you, and we're going to start with the fantasy. 
Uh, I selected for the homework The City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty, a uh, Middle Eastern-flavored fantasy novel about a uh, young girl, a street rat one might call her, named Nakari, who lives in 18th century Cairo under the Ottoman Empire. She has strange powers, but isn't really aware of them. They're they're very subtle. Um, she can uh, heal people, determine if people are ill, and uh, learns languages very quickly. Uh, well, one thing leads to another, and she eventually discovers that there are such thing as jinn, uh, what we in the West would would call genie. Um, and one of them, a uh, powerful jinn named Dara, reveals that she is uh, that Nahri is the last surviving member of the Nahid family, a uh, powerful ruling family in Devabad, the titular city of Brass, a city of of jinn. Um, they pursued by foes such as Ifrits and uh, Marids and Peris, uh, Dara and Nahri flee to Devabad which itself is undergoing some political turmoil. Uh, turns out that there are full-blooded jinn and then jinn-human offspring known as uh, Shafits, um, who are the definite underclass. Uh, the One of the two princes of the kingdom, uh, Ali, uh, Ali Zaid, uh, or Ali, is a devout Muslim and cares for the Shafit and, and wants to improve their lot in life, while his father, a uh, hard tyrannical man, and his uh, brother, uh, Muntindar, who is a bit of a playboy, um, would rather just keep the, the Shafits, you know, sort of crushed and suppressed. Um, romance abounds, love triangles abound, uh, po political scheming abounds. If you like Game of Thrones, you will definitely like the political scheming happening here. Uh, and things eventually come to a head because the Nahids were not well-liked by the ruling family, uh, and uh, Dara himself is has a rather uh, tumultuous and dangerous backstory, um, all of which leads to chaos and violence when they finally uh, come to Devabad and sort of turn things upside down. Um Martha, this was your first time consuming this. I'd read this a year or two ago. Uh, what'd you think? I really loved it. Also, this is a YA novel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, down to the uh, the chosen one is a young girl. Uh, I, I guess yeah. like, like she's a young woman. Um, yeah, with magical it powers. Really, it really made me laugh because I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I'm looking forward to reading the sequels, but... Yeah, there's just so much of this. And this one got, um, I think, pretty critically acclaimed. It did. Um, and it is definitely marketed as an adult fantasy book, but it has so many YA story tropes or things that I expect from like a YA fantasy novel. Like we have the super special... A uh, girl with powers who is the last of her kind and like the most special of the devas. And um, we don't fully get to develop it or get into it yet, but there's we're setting up for a love triangle. Um, there's a lot of, oh, like, uh, he's so frustrating, but then I keep spending time with him. Uh, and the more I learn about him, mm -hmm. the more it's like, oh no, I kind of like him. And that and happens to of, two characters, uh, uh, yes, you know, vis-a-vis -vis two characters. Sort of, 
Yeah, because we have her kind of immediate attraction to Dara, the djinn that she accidentally summons, and then her kind of slow-growing friendship with Ali. Um, And then also, I'm interested to know if this will come back, uh, how she is initially intended to marry Ali's brother. Mm -hmm. And just, like, I don't know if you're familiar with the book The Red Queen. I am Um, familiar with the title. This is like a better written version of the Red Queen. <laughs> um, it was just, it just, it made me laugh because I felt very strongly like a lot of the themes and tropes that get, der- that attract kind of derision from people in YA fantasy. I'm like, they're all on display here. And, you know, maybe we can stop talking um condescendingly about fantasy when it's YA. But no, I really I thought this was really fun. Um I like Nari as a character. I enjoy her. Um I like the world. I like the unfamiliar mythology. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's I I like the way and we can we can talk more about this because I think it's going to be sort of the focus of this particular book. But I like the way that Chakraborty just sort of she does not spend any time or I guess they, I'm not sure. She, she, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, she just drops terms for like clothing and architectural elements and religious elements. And like the language is not a language or verbiage or like things that I'm familiar with, but she's just like, you'll get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that uh, a big reason I picked it and I picked it without knowing any of Chakraborty's backstory, which we can get into if we want to. Um, I but, would like to. Yes. Great. Um, but it is like, it is deeply steeped in a, like an Islamic tradition wherein we're just dropping like terms for various, you know, each of the five uh, daily calls to prayer has a different name and we're just dropping them. And there's an index in the, or a glossary in the back to explain that. And you can also pick it up from context clues. Um, but you also have a bit of a religious tension wherein, like, Ali is a, a devoted Muslim, as is Nahri, but, uh, like, the devas um, are... Well, they're they're fire is worship. devoted is Nahri. Uh, fair enough. But but she, she grew up in Cairo as a Muslim, uh, whereas the people that she leads, the devas, one of the six tribes of the jinn, um, are fire worshippers, which are would be Zoroastrians. Um, so there's a bit of a religious tension, like underscoring all this as well, um, which makes total sense for, you know, cause, cause that sort of Deva bad would be in Persia and, or, you know, which, uh, is where Zoroastrian comes from. Uh, at the time, obviously it all would have been Muslim, but, uh, m- much as it is today, but, you know, going back 3000 years or whatever. Um, I mean, like, I didn't know any of that. Mm, right. And right. that is fascinating to me. And but also not knowing that did not affect or impact my enjoyment of the story. Absolutely. It's it's a, it's such a well woven like fantasy story that and, and we've talked on the podcast about like getting dropped in fantasy worlds where the names are too weird and there's too many uh, apostrophes in them and all the rest of it. Uh, and this isn't that. But in a way it is where it's like we've got a whole set of of backstories and rules and cultures and things to this universe that is unfamiliar to a generic western reader um there is fully a difference though between this name is unfamiliar to me because it is from a part of the world that i am not from and 
this is the name Megan that they changed all of the vowels to <laughs> Y. Yeah, I was going to say it has three an Ys. Extra, yeah. <laughs> and, a, and an apostrophe. Right. Uh, I do not for a moment want to give the impression that we are equating stupid Western fantasy made up BS names. I, I'm not talking about the names. I'm talking more about like the the world, right? Like, okay. Like a lot of the, a lot of, I think the, some of the tropes and whatnot she made up like Marids, I don't think are, are necessarily traditionally seen as water spirits. Um, but they are, you know, seen as a sort of spirit. Um, I also could be wrong about that. Uh, but like, there's, there's a lot of world building that's happening. That's drawn from like Islamic tradition. Um, but to an unfamiliar Westerner, that is as unfamiliar as a made-up world-building thing for a, you know, for, for, like totally made from whole cloth based on European tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's at, at its most fundamental and, you know, not giving it enough credit, not most fundamental, but at, I, at its most superficial, um, what this book does is kind of present a lot of the fantasy tropes that we are already familiar with, but in a skin that we are not. Yes, yes. Um, and I think that does make some amount of sense. Uh, getting into Chakraborty's like backstory, if that makes sense to describe someone's life as a backstory. Um, okay. I did not know. Yeah, background. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Be the normal way of saying that. <laughs> Let me put this as convolutedly as possible. Um, so I did not know this when we assigned the, when I assigned the book, but, um, she was born and raised in New Jersey to Catholic parents and converted to Islam in her teens. Um, she's about our age, so that would have been a bold time to convert to Islam, uh, right after 9-11. Um, uh, uh, married an Indian man, um, which is where her last name comes from. Uh, she was a historian specializing in the Middle East, um, and went from there to you know into writing so she has both a she has a deep western background in the sense that she was raised in the u.s uh but also she has the like she converted to islam has all that knowledge legitimately but not ingrained from birth as it were uh and then also studied the region uh scholar in a scholarly manner before turning it into fiction yeah and i think that it also makes a lot of um like unfamiliar cultural cues more accessible, mm -hmm. which is to the Western reader, which is not to say that all books written must be accessible to the Western reader, but it certainly made it easier for me to immerse myself in the world of this book. Um, we will, we will get to the difference between that and a slightly less accessible world in the second half of this discussion. Um, but I, I think it helps open up that book to a wider audience mm -hmm. and it helps put these ideas and these, like this culture in more people's minds. And I'm very pro right now in normalizing non-white people in the media that we consume, like working to make, working to make there not be a default and if there is a default not having it be a white straight man yeah. in the media that we consume yeah and 
making making a story like this accessible and writing about it critically in a positive way and putting it on bestseller lists is a an easy way to help with that. Yes, uh, and I'm I'm seeing on on Wiki that in May it was announced that this would be turned into a Netflix uh, series. Heck yeah, uh, which would be super exciting, especially because the six tribes of devas come from all across the Muslim world. So you have like the Agnivan, Agnivansha from India. You have the uh, the Gazira uh, Gaziri from uh, the uh, Arabian Peninsula. Um, so so this would be a very easy way to cast a lot of well in an ideal world it would be an easy way to cast a lot of diverse people of color uh from all sorts of backgrounds in a less ideal world uh we're just gonna have a bunch of you know generic brown people without any uh focus on cultural backgrounds or whatnot um but i would hope that a show based on a book like this would not be taking that route Fingers crossed. This does make me think, like, based on that and what I was talking about in the Stuck in Your Head, and also a show that I've been meaning to watch and will now make a higher priority, Netflix is doing a lot of really good work in terms of making multicultural media accessible. I read a book earlier in this year called The Ghost Bride, and I read it because I saw a trailer for a Netflix adaptation that they made Um, It is about a woman who gets married to a ghost as Hmm. a way of... I've I've seen this. It's called Beetlejuice. No. (laughs) (laughs) So she is a a poorer woman who accepts a, a position with a wealthy family to be a bride for their deceased son who did not have the chance to get married during his life. Um, which would also mean that she would be a widow for her whole life, but she would also be taken care of by this family. Hmm. Um, But she, in an effort to like, this is an arrangement that her father makes with the family and she is not happy about it. And in an effort to break away from the situation actually ends up spending, spending some time in the underworld. Um, But it is the underworld as, would be familiar to a consumer of Malaysian folklore and like folklore and folktales. Oh, interesting. Rather than the underworld as like you or I in our Western tradition understand it. So would that be more similar to like the Bardo? Uh, I don't, I don't know what that is. Like the the Bardo I know is, is a Tibetan idea, but it permeates a lot of Buddhist ideas. Um, It's sort of a holding place where you wait for your next reincarnation. Yes, only they don't make it explicit that these spirits are waiting for their next incarnation. They're basically Mm. waiting on judgment. Mm. So, like, a ghost gets to wait in this kind of limbo space um, and enjoy the offerings that are given to them. So, like, wealthy ghosts have houses and um, servants and because Mm. they they are wealthy through offerings. And then you have ghosts who are, like, fading um, because they aren't getting fed by... Uh, monetary or food offerings. A real cocoa situation. A little bit, yeah. 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 And then at a certain point, the judges of the underworld rule on where they're going and they move on to their next um, phase of existence. Mm. Um, but yeah, that, that was another one that would have been a good choice for this episode. And it just makes me think that Netflix is 
putting out a lot of stuff like they're I think that they must be purchasing the distribution rights to a lot of these properties. Yeah. So that they can air them. Um, they also have a huge selection of Korean romantic comedy TV <laughs> well, shows. Wild. <laughs> which I at some point would really like to delve into. <laughs> <laughs> have that be a love you episode. Yeah. Uh, that that being said, you said um, Netflix is putting out a lot of stuff, and I know you meant by that putting a lot out a lot of um, multinational, non-white stuff, but also just in general, Netflix is putting out a lot of stuff. Yeah, in this context specifically, I did mean um, multinational yeah. media. Yeah. Uh, but I think I, that's I, really I, cool. Yeah, uh, but also when you put out uh, ten billion things per year. Uh, a good portion of that had better be non-Western. Yeah, no kidding. I'm glad this was one of the few times when I was really glad I had Twitter because I saw the trailer. Someone retweeted it on Twitter. They were like, this is the Chinese fantasy of my dreams. And I was like, hey, that looks really cool. <laughs> oh, it's based on a book. Don't mind if I do. <laughs> nice. I also don't think they spend any money advertising their stuff. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like they put out so much and half of it, it's just like... Huh. Okay, that's weird. Yep. Uh, and then they uh, also go ahead and say nonsense things like more people saw, you know, Bright than Avengers Endgame, and it's like that is objectively not true. Not true. <laughs> no. Uh, speaking of Chinese, well, you said Chinese fantasy, but Chinese science fiction. Uh, let's segue on to the next next homework we assigned. Um. So I picked the Three Body Problem, uh, a science fiction novel by. Xichen Lu, which was originally published in, well, first it was serialized in Science Fiction World magazine in 2006, published as a book in 2008, and then translated for, um, translated into English in 2014 by Ken Liu. Uh, it was the first Asian novel to win a Hugo Award for Best Novel and was also nominated for the Nebula Award for Best Novel. It is about so many things. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, starts... I, I hit the easy, straightforward book to summarize. <laughs> I was gonna say. So this book starts during the Cultural Revolution, uh, where a an astrophysics graduate named Yi Wen... Yi Wenji uh, witnesses the death of her father by at the um, hands of the Red Guard. Sorry, I, I'm going to stop you real quick uh, because I just realized this. Uh, the Hugo went to this and then N.K. Jemison's hat trick. Uh, Heck yeah. So like very good job, uh, the Hugos, for doing four years in a row of non-white men. Well, right, you know, non, about, non-white that's people. About, I think when the white men all got really sad and angry and tried to game the Hugos. Yes. But N.K. Jemison is too good. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, which uh, causes you to be disillusioned by the Red Guard and branded a traitor and sent to a labor brigade. Um, she... It's a, the story is told she's a chrono. I was going to say she's recruited in prison by um, a couple of military physicists uh, and then during her work with them 
receives a radio transmission from aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say the book is about a lot of stuff, um, her communication with the aliens and responding to their communication being the catalyst for their eventual invasion of the earth and then, uh, decimation of the human race question mark isn't even like the main, <laughs> like the main <laughs> thing going on. So like, like the book is told a chronologically, so we don't even know until like two thirds of the way through the book that she has communicated with aliens uh and the aliens the first communication to her is do not respond to this message never send another signal again uh because if you do we'll find you and kill you and then she's like humans suck respond to message yeah um she eventually hooks up with an american ceo of an oil company named mike who is a radical environmentalist um the world once once the world kind of finds out about what is happening with the aliens things immediately start kind of splitting into factions with different like reactions to the alien invasion that's coming um the the way that the the aliens the trisolarans are going to invade us is by basically preventing us from being able to advance in science it's going to take hundreds of years for their spaceships to reach here um so in that time they're going to shut down our science using special magic particles that will screw up all of our scientific efforts and researches so we also follow a nanomaterials researcher who is seeing a countdown in his eyes uh sent by the aliens um but yeah i read this book or i listened to this book with wikipedia open in front of me i'm still not wholly sure i understand what the three bottom three body problem is um do you want me to try to explain or no <laughs> i don't i mean probably not okay the importance i mean my important takeaways here is that this is a book deeply rooted in the hardest of science fiction but is also extremely concerned with the human condition mm -hmm. and is also deeply deeply chinese yes but also explain um so it like uh as we were talking off air before we started it opens with the cultural revolution uh, it opens with a uh young girl being gunned down in uh not only during the cultural revolution but during a civil war amongst various factions within the cultural revolution um because ain't a revolution like one that eats its own children um so it, like there is a both all so many of the references um in the three body problem video game within this world there are so many references to chinese emperors uh which just go right over my head without wiki there um and you know throughout the beginning part of the book especially with the cultural revolution it's deeply rooted in chinese history it's also like and that history informs and scars so many of the characters like what um uh Ye Wenji went through during the Cultural Revolution is why she chose, I think, to respond to the Trisolarans, um, saying, come destroy Earth because we're not like we can't 
<laughs> not come destroy Earth, but like, we can't do this ourselves. You need to come fix this for us because we can't be trusted. Um, and then beyond that, beyond the, 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 like the historical and the cultural roots, just the language of the book is, um, very different from any book I've read before. Everything is like written in declarative statements. Which I wonder is a function of it being a translation. That is possible. Um, it did feel, it felt tonally like a wuxia film would feel um just in like the like the slightly over the top bombast and then declarative statements which again i can't i can't as someone who knows zero chinese i can't determine if that's a like an a, a stilted artifice of the translation or if that's how it would also come across to a chinese reader um and if in and if that is a more traditional slash accepted slash normed way of writing in Chinese. I will say, um, so again, looking at the Wikipedia article for this book, um, it was, and I think remains one of the most popular science fiction novels in China. It sold something like 500,000 copies in the, um, I don't know what span of time. Many. <laughs> Oh, as of the end of 2012. So, oh, hmm. you know, that was eight years ago. Um, I was doing a little bit of reading about science fiction in China in general. Mm -hmm. um, and during the Cultural Revolution, um, did you, or was it during... No, sorry. Um, before the Cultural Revolution, right after the Chinese Civil War in 1949, um, China and Russia were both publishing a lot of socialist realism science fiction. Sure. Which I don't know that I would call this book, but I do think you can see like the evolution of that idea into this book. Um, it, it really struck me because I feel like so much sci-fi that I read that is like specifically American in like American made mm -hmm. tends to be about one person fighting against one system. Um, and this book felt much more like, like Yi is the, is the closest I think we get to a main character but it still felt like the story of a bunch of different systems um, sort of like circling each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Much like, say, a uh, a three body problem. Is that what that means? Yeah. So the three body okay. like so. So the idea of the three body problem is if you have three objects um, mm -hmm. and they're orbiting each other. The way they interact with each other, you basically can't, like unless you know the initial conditions, you can't determine how they'll orbit each other it's just too chaotic um so that's the three okay. that's the three stars of the trisolaran system and it's why their planet is so screwed um i mean it's also kind of like the um and i'm sure that this is intentional but then gets mirrored between the different like the um the adventists and the other ones 
Yeah, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you end up with these different groups who are interpreting these events in different ways, which is causing them to react in different ways, which causes the other groups to react in different ways. Like, it's a very... I as we talk about this, I am I am better understanding its relationship to the title. I'm so um, glad that you accidentally stumbled into what the three body problem is. <laughs> I read the Wikipedia article like three times. I was like, I don't understand. <laughs> it's it's like if you have like three balls in space and they're orbiting each other, they're all gonna pull on each other in ways that unless you know where they started current mathematics cannot predict how they will interact with each other got it um it also i i feel like we're also doing something in this book with like science and religion and i don't know what the third body in that relationship would be i think government yeah um, um speaking of government how much did you love dashi is he not your favorite character and do you want an entire netflix miniseries about him uh he's the the police detective <laughs> I would watch an entire miniseries about most of these characters. Um, but yes, he's great. Yeah. Uh, a cigar chomping uh, bleep hole of a detective. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also enjoyed the foray into um, how video games influence <laughs> the people who play them. Yes, I was I was fascinated that this was written in 2006 and the major video game is like a haptic full body suit like MMO type situ like like a um second life kind of game almost. Mhm. Mm but yeah, how do we feel? Okay, so getting away from the book. Mhm. Mm how do we feel about the fact that the people who have been chosen to adapt this into a TV show mm -hmm. are David Benioff and D.B. Weiss? I mean, they did such a great job with Game of Thrones that I have only the highest possible expectations for uh, a pair of white guys adapting this, uh, you know, this this very non-white book. Can't can't see any problems here. I hate you. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I get why that decision was made in a bunch of, like, corporate offices, right? Like, this is a major sci-fi book. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's won uh, awards. Uh, Obama has blurbed uh, it, um, you know, as, as being a book he thoroughly enjoyed. So we've got a big, hot property on our hands. We've got these hot, you know, directors um, who... I uh, happily have decided not to do a neo Confederate show, uh, and HBO oh still and HBO still <laughs> loves them. So yeah, we'll we'll throw them this new hot property and see what happens. Uh, this one at least we know the ending of, so they can't you know screw that one up too bad. Um, well, and I like, will I, tell I, you, yeah, I am reading an article from September of this year, and it does say that Shichin and Ken Liu are both, um. Consulting like, producers. Okay. So, at the very least, the author of the book and the person who understands it the deepest because they had to translate it to a Western audience are involved in the project. But also, really, Netflix? Yeah. Really? It, is it Netflix who's uh, who's doing it? Yeah. Hmm. I, like, it's one of those things where, again, in the corporate offices, I get how it all came together, and it's still a bad choice. It's as easy as that. 
Um, interestingly enough, uh, Ken Liu did not translate the middle book. He translated the first and the third, but not the second. Huh. And who I've... did the who did the middle one? Joel Martinson. I I ask that like I have any idea. <laughs> right, and I I say that name like I have any idea who that is. Um, I wonder. Yeah, like no idea what the the reasoning there was. Yeah. Um, I uh, so when you were going to when you brought up the the D and D connection here, uh, the other direction we could have gone is. Uh, Xi Liu is a full-throated supporter of the Chinese ruling party and, uh, you know, the Uyghur concentration camps, um, and all the rest of it, which does make this a rather more problematic work. Um, you know, there's always the question of how, you know, how much of that is a, you know, go along with it to get by in the country to to maintain, you know, where he's at versus how much of it is actual things he, you know, actively believes. But I don't think it's actually worth the time to try to psychoanalyze that one since we have no way of knowing. And I say trust him at his word. Um, Yeah, I am generally on the side of trust people when they tell you who they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there are a couple of exceptions to that, particularly when we are talking about Chinese celebrities. Mm hmm. Like, I think there's a very good chance that that poor girl who was in Mulan does not actually sympathize with the Hong Kong police police force. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know how much influence, like, I I don't know if an author could have be said to have the same. Right. I don't. like optics right. as an international actress. So I, I don't know. Yeah. It does not sit super well with me. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that like not, you know, not having a lot of detailed knowledge of the, the cultural revolution and all the rest of it. Um, I don't like read any of that in his work. Like I'm not getting any, you know, in in the three body problem, there is no clear anti Uyghur sentiment. There is no clear, you know, support for one child policy or what have you. Um, I was going to ask how knowing that about his politics, um, if that influenced or affected how you read. I don't. The book. I don't think it did. So I I just reread the book for the podcast after learning that about him, and I couldn't. Like, I don't think it changed what I thought about it, mostly because it's written like it instantly sort of takes you out of what you know and puts you into a different mindset by reading it. Um, Or at least it does for me. And because there's no obvious, you know, screeds about anything political per se, um, he clearly is not a fan of what happened during the Cultural Revolution. Um, uh, But I I think that's a generally agreed upon statement. I do think the book is pretty harshly political in that I think it's very nihilistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a lot going on, I think, about the role that government and religion play in our cult. Well, not our, it in culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually found those themes to be more universal or to at least feel more familiar. Yeah. Than um the 
Chinese like history and cultural revolution touchstones. Right. Like the, the idea of humanity, like looking at for an outside force as like a savior or conqueror, like makes total sense. Um, well, and we currently live in a nation that is gripped by a confusion over how much power we should give God in governing our country. Uh, yes, <laughs> very, very true. <laughs> we're, we're living in a nation gripped by a lot of confusions. Oh, goodness. Um, but yeah, even though I, I agree with you, I think this book is extremely and uniformly Chinese in sensibility. There was still a lot that I found to be relatable and identifiable oh yeah hard, um, hard agree yeah particularly when you start talking about like technology versus religion and um religion versus government mm-hmm. you know those kinds of questions i think we see just in sci-fi in general uh those are pretty universally questioned ideas yeah questions about what we owe each other what we owe the future yeah, and like what rights what rights do we have inherently as people and as occupants of the earth versus what do we like what have we perhaps taken um advantage of, mm-hmm, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, like the the scene um when uh you're saying uh Ye Wenji or Yi Wenji? I was saying Yi Wenji, but I don't know that you, that's... I mean, you, you've listened to the audiobook. I've read it. It's Y-E, so I'm going to go with however you have been hearing it. I, and I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> okay, okay, all right. All right, well, if, if you're um, uncertain, listen, I'm going to go I, back to Ye. I was going to say, I did listen to the audiobook. Um, it was a tough listen. Um, it It is not very long, but it is extremely dense, and it was dense in a way that was not familiar to me, obviously, because that was the theme of the show. Uh-huh, yeah. So doing the best I can. Yeah. Uh, well, um, uh, Ye Wenji, at, at the beginning, when she's sort of in the the clear cutting logging group and they're just like cutting down all the trees, um, that felt very universal. Uh, and then there's like the reference to Silent Spring, all the rest of it. Um, Sorry, that's what I was thinking of. Touching on your idea of like, what do we, what rights do we have as people versus what rights have we sort of usurped from nature? Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, that's that's very much a, anyone in the 21st century can be grappling with that environmentalist message. Yes. We did a whole episode on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anything else we want to say? No, I was, I was just going to throw that back to you. Any any overarching things you want to be talking about on this topic or these two homeworks um, combined? I just think it's always fun and interesting to get out of our comfort zones, like particularly in genre fiction, which by its nature, I think is meant to push boundaries. Mm-hmm. It is fun to get out of the like high, high fantasy European based mythos and explore um, some other touchstones or interpretations uh, I have I've been trying just in general to read more things by not white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was interesting to explore someone else's idea of like what a fantasy world looks like. You know, what what is our vision of the future? Well, it's it's interesting. I have been seeing on Twitter just the last couple of days people 
people, whatever. Twitter is nonsense, whatever. So like take everything I say with a grain of salt. But like some people on Twitter grappling with the idea of science fiction's role in society as a way to envision the future and how that gets turned into what we expect from the future. And therefore the sort of responsibilities that science fiction authors might have to grapple with certain kinds of ideas not necessarily rather than others but to prioritize some um i also that's that's funny because that is not what i would have said is the role of science fiction (laughs) well i also just earlier today listened to a a podcast with kim stanley robinson who is a science fiction author most famous for red mars but recently has been writing a slew of um uh what's called what's been what's being called cly fantasy for climate or no cly fiction uh instead of sci fiction Eh, yeah whatever um but like he's he's writing near-term future about climate disaster stuff or like humans grappling with climate change um and sort of the importance of of grappling with that through science fiction as a way for the present to think about and address the future um, well, and that is that is what I would have said the role of science fiction is. It's not really to help us envision the future. It's to help us process the present so we can, you know, design the future how we want it to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But also like the the portrayals of the future in sci fi, it, it's a bit of a feedback loop, right? Where like you sci fi is obviously a reflection of the present but how it reflects the present will inevitably inspire people to create things like that reflection. Um, I, I don't know that I give it that much credit. Okay. Um, just because I think that the future is harder to predict. So people writing science fiction are less trying to predict the future and more trying to help people envision how the present could impact the future. Hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's to it's 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 to help us process what is happening right now right um and part of the way of doing that is to you know force us to look ahead even though we can't really know well, what and, the future is going to look like and and to grapple with the ideas of the present in ways that are not coded as strongly um you know that that don't evoke that knee-jerk reaction um sort of the classic star trek yeah, we're talking about like race or class, but it's with green-skinned Uranians or it's with Klingons instead of the the Soviet Union. So we can have that dialogue, but without having the knee-jerk reaction. Yeah, I, I tend to think that that has become a crutch that people now use as an excuse to not include characters of color or different... Um... <sighs> different anything yeah like how how frequently do we hear people complain now it's like you included green people but you couldn't put a black person on your spaceship oh, totally and like and like that's a fair critique but when star trek was doing it in the 60s um that you know it was groundbreaking at the time for what it was doing Sure, um, but you may have noticed it's not the 60s anymore. Oh, no, I, I completely agree. But I'm saying you can still do the same sort of thing, obviously not in the same way, but you can you can grapple with the concerns of the present through, you know, changing the lens 
Um, and, and, you know, whether that concern be race or, uh, better yet, not like, you know, something else like eco, uh, problems or class problems or what have you. I think we've looped around to agreeing with each other. Okay. (laughs) I love it when that happens. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, anything you want to be talking about this episode or is that a pretty good time to wrap it up? I think I'm good. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I thought this was a pretty good episode. Um, <laughs> normally, normally we save the self-congratulations for after the recording. <laughs> uh, little do you know, but I leave that on for the stinger sequence um, where Nick Fury shows up. Uh, have you been offered a seat in the Avengers? Um, <laughs> no, but I do have to share the story with you. Uh, I just got Marin to watch the favorite. Okay. Um, and as the credits were rolling, I was like, no, we have to sit through the end because at the end of the credits, Nick Fury shows up and offers uh, Queen Anne a position <laughs> on the Avengers Council. <laughs> uh, good. No. <laughs> <laughs> Every movie is a Marvel movie. Um, oh, God. I feel like we're not. I mean, speaking of dystopian futures, I, I, we're not the, that far away. <laughs> happening the word dystopian future also banged around my mind as i was saying that (laughs) all right well uh tangents aside thank you all so much for listening to this episode uh you can find us on apple Podcasts, soundcloud stitcher google play spotify any podcatcher that you're using that's the term the kids are using these days i think podcatcher um you know like and review us give us a good five star rating if five is the most number of stars you can give give us a good review Uh, Tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at DYDYH Podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook by searching for Did You Do Your Homework? Did You Do Your Homework Podcast. You can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. And uh, I guess, yeah, email us whatever you want. Martha, where can people find you? And what what other podcasts do you have to plug? <laughs> nice leading question there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I will have you know that for the outro for Love Ya, the last several episodes, I have remembered everything uh, you have. that I needed to say. It's it's been great, and also uh I like how every time you also include that I will drop in whatever you've forgotten. And so well, far it's been working. Now out. I just expect it. <laughs> um I'm Magical Martha at all the places, um, including a tiny letter newsletter that I write. I was writing very frequently in October. Um, which you can find at tinyletter.com backslash magical Martha. I just finished up my 100 scariest movie moments uh, from 2010 up till now. I came in a couple short from 100, mostly because I wanted to include some 2020 movies and I haven't seen them yet. So it was hard (laughs) to write about them. Um, I also do a podcast called Love Ya, where Pete's wife Marin and I watch a romantic comedy or a teen movie and then talk about it in depth. Our last episode was on Enola Holmes, another Netflix original. And our next episode will be on Happiest Season, the Hulu lesbian Christmas rom-com starring Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis. Great. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm tweeting politics and pop culture. Uh, and, you know, whatever delightful penguin or otter content the Shed Aquarium uh, deigns to serve me up that day. Uh, 
I really enjoy it when their penguins get to travel places. Yeah, when they were at Soldier Field, it was lovely. Oh my god. (laughs) The topic of next episode is co-produced by COVID. Uh, We're talking about media that we think pretty much could only exist because of the pandemic. Get ready for a lot of uh, Zoom chat videos. Um, Martha, you were the one who came up with this idea. What is the homework that you are assigning? Sure. I am assigning the 2020 Shutter original host, uh, which was directed by Rob Savage and filmed entirely on Zoom about a group of people who participate in a seance over Zoom to uh, demonic results. (laughs) Don't do it, guys. Yeah, just like playing with an Ouija board, don't do it. It is a Shudder original, but um, Shudder offers a free seven-day trial, and also Shudder is making a lot of really great a diverse horror right now so it's not the worst streaming service that you could sign up to support nice uh i am assigning also one that's a little more challenging to access um back in ooh, september august sometime um the wisconsin dems put on a fundraiser with the cast of princess bride to do a table read of the princess bride Uh, They had got nearly the entire cast back together, barring a few who, uh, due to morbidity, were not able to make it, uh, and also a few just aged out of the roles, etc. R.I.P. Andre the Giant. R.I.P. Andre the Giant. Uh, But it was a truly delightful table read. Um, Proceeds went to the Wisconsin Dems, which was lovely back then, and it is still available, hopefully, through Act Blue. If you search for Princess Bride table read you will likely be uh directed to various links that will get you there Uh, the suggested donation from act blue is 27 dollars. that is a lot of money for watching not even a movie uh but it's a pay what you want situation so you know throw them a dollar and uh check it out um uh manny patinkin is truly truly one of the mentions in history Uh, he is so delightful in this um and I won't say anything more because it would spoil it. If you have the time and inclination and the movie lets you do it, stick around for the Q&A afterwards. There's a lot of very fun and funny conversations and heartfelt uh, peons to democracy. Every time someone puts Mandy Patinkin in something where he doesn't get to sing, my heart is sad. <laughs> uh, I don't think he gets to sing in this. No, he doesn't. I've seen The Princess Bride. Well, I, I mean, like, e- even in the post-show <laughs> bit, I don't think he does any singing. Uh, oh. He instead just has an amazing heartfelt speech about how important democracy is and uh, a incredible subtweet of Ted Cruz. Uh, in-person you subtweet. You mean the, the Zodiac Killer? <laughs> yes, yes, I do. <laughs> I am willing to bring that meme back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd support you on bringing that meme back. Sweet. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we will see you all in two weeks when we will be talking about things co-produced by COVID. Uh, And until then, class dismissed. I'm really thought I'm really glad I thought up that co-produced by COVID line because you really enjoy it. It's an incredible line. <laughs> <laughs>